You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Nils Kastrup-Larsen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for long-time listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and check out past episodes that you may have missed. Firstly, let me just say a big thanks to those of you who left a rating and review this week in iTunes. We really do appreciate this as they help more investors discover the podcast. And of course, we would like for that those of you who have not yet left a rating and review would take five minutes now to get that done. Hopefully that's not too much to ask for. With that out of the way, let me say good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are things where you are and are you getting ready for the big Champions League final on Sunday? Oh yeah, more than ready for the big Champions League final tomorrow. Bayern versus Paris. Paris. Let's see how that goes, but I'm all excited. Other than that, I'm doing fine. Thanks, Niels. How are you? It's a um, cloudy overcast day, unfortunately, on this Saturday today. But yeah, look, I mean, we've had a fantastically sunny week. Probably all of the last five days have been uh, super, super summer sunshine days. So uh, it's uh, probably refreshing. Welcome to have a little bit of clouds today. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's been so warm and humid here in Switzerland this week. And so uh, last night when the clouds came and the rain started, it was kind of a, a little bit of a relief, to be frank. Now, what a way to finish the week for U.S. stocks. I mean, the S&P making new all-time highs at... 3,400, or should I say 3,399.96 to be precise. And it joins the NASDAQ in its seemingly unstoppable rise. But that's actually not what caught my attention this week. Apple did. So you see, of Friday's 190 points advance in the Dow Jones, Apple accounted for 167 of those points. And What's really truly amazing is that Apple's market capitalization now is more than $2 trillion, And it's nearly as large as the entire market capitalization of the Russell 2000 index, which is only about $100 billion higher. So one stock nearly equals 2,000 stocks. So to me, the question is, I mean, are we past this being a bubble? Are we into this being a mania? I mean, if you look at a chart of Apple, I think you could be forgiven for believing it is a mania. But hey, I mean, if you think Apple is crazy, what about Tesla, which stands to join the S&P in the top 10 if it meets all the criteria? So here you have two stocks pulling up the entire market along with a few others. But what they both have in common that may have created, by the way, this parabolic move in the last few weeks is that they both announced a stock split recently. Nothing other than that, really. So for those of us, I guess, who experienced the tech bubble firsthand, these type of markets certainly fits the Mark Twain quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Now, another thing that caught my attention this week, 
thanks to uh, one of our previous guests, uh, namely Jesse Felder. What's about gold? I noticed that uh, he wrote about Warren Buffett have been busy buying up the shiny metal at the same time, actually, that he's been selling airlines and banks. So I'm not sure how much belief he has in the U.S. economy, even though he's often quoted for saying so. Um, the question is, of course, why would he be buying lots of gold? Now, none of us knows the real v- reason, but perhaps this has to do with his view on the U.S. dollar, which, by the way, has been cited by pretty much all of our global macro guests for being the market to watch. Now, it's not the first time that uh, Buffett buys precious metals. Back in the 60s, he bought silver in a big way, and in the 90s, he bought gold. Perhaps once again, he's worried about demonetization. But, you know, in 1967, the word meant one thing, which is decoupling from gold. Today, it means something different. So we'll see how that all plays out. But what's interesting also is that about a year ago, Charlie Munger, uh, who's of course the partner of Warren Buffett, he said something along those lines that I'm so afraid of a democracy getting the idea that you can print money to solve all problems. And eventually I know that will fail. All the politicians in Europe and America have learned to print money. Who knows when money printing runs out of control? At the end, if you print too much you end up with something like Venezuela. Now, of course, since then, we know that uh, both in Europe and in the US, the money printing machines have not really stopped running. So I guess in the light of that, and of course, the recent actions in the US by the Congress and the Fed to generate essentially the biggest fiscal deficit to GDP in, in all of history and monetize the entire amount of that The greatest investor of modern times is probably understandably putting on a little bit of an inflation hedge. So all in all, I would say we live in in an interesting world, Moritz, where I believe at least that the inclusion of divergent strategies like trend following and volatility will be essential for all investors. So that was a long introduction, actually. Yeah, but good introduction. I mean, divergent strategies, we like them. I think they are important, but... um like you say, these stock markets, they continue to just be amazing slash interesting. And by the way, this morning, I read about another letter-shaped recovery in the Financial Times. You know, it, it all started with the V, and the V is in, and then, you know, people were talking about the W, and then they were talking about a lowercase h. And this morning, I read, now it's going to be K-shaped, because, you know, the V is in, and now we're doing the, you know, the second leg of the K uh, down again. But who knows whether that's true or not? And what you've just alluded to with those tilted stock markets, essentially one stock, Apple being almost worth as much as the Russell 2000 in its entirety. It's quite amazing that you have, you know, five, six or seven tech stocks. And they're all tech stocks completely dominating the behavior of those indices. And if you took those stocks away out of the index, then the S&P, of course, wouldn't be at an all-time high. It would be about 25% below its high. So you don't have that breadth in the market. It's really driven by a very small segment of the market. And yes, people are playing, or I guess the market's playing the possible inclusion of Tesla into the S&P 500. We haven't heard about the, or at least I, maybe I've missed it, but I haven't read the official announcement yet, but there's more noise about it. And the thing is trading north of 2000, right? I mean, 
couple of months ago was trading at 300. How amazing is this? And the company hasn't changed all that much. I know they're coming up and they're coming out with all these new great ideas. Actually, you know, case in point, there's the Tesla short shorts. And I think this week they announced a Tesla dating app. If you go to tesladating.co, then that's a new dating app by Tesla where Tesla aficionados can find their match made in heaven who's also driving a Tesla, I guess, because that's the that's the prerequisite. You have to be a Tesla owner in order to join that app. So there's always these new things coming out. And by the way, speaking about these indices there, I did manage to find some time and watch um, an interview in Real Vision by Mike Green, who we had on our show a couple of weeks ago on the Global Macro Series, an interview between him and Rob Arnott from Research Affiliates. And there was a lot of stuff in there about flows and the impact of flows and the constructions of indices and passive investing and you know how essentially that becomes like a perpetuum mobile where of course you know the price insensitive buyers if they're if people send their paychecks to the nasdaq which to a certain extent is happening then that etf must buy the underlying basket of stocks right and so it propels that momentum higher and higher and higher. They must buy Tesla, they must buy Apple, they must buy Netflix and so on. And so that that gap between these stocks, which have a high weight, and other stocks, the laggards in the index, becomes wider and wider and wider. I guess that's up to a point when it doesn't, and we'll find out when that is. And this brings me to your original question, which is the importance of divergent strategies. Because when it turns... This is essentially then divergence, right? The convergence stops. The thing that always goes just one way, all of a sudden stops and it's kind of like a reshuffling of the deck and it becomes diverse again. And we may need some time for our positions to adjust to that environment. But if it then goes on and it doesn't immediately flip around and does another V-shaped recovery, then we should be on the, the winning side of these of these moves. Well, let me pick up on that a little bit. I think you're bringing up some interesting points. and. It's true. I mean, for those of you who are not familiar with the work of Mike Green and the impact of passive on the markets, you should definitely check that out. Of course, we would suggest you check it out on, on our conversation with Mike, but he has done a lot of great conversations on many platforms. There's no doubt that passive has had a huge impact on the markets. And as you say, at the moment, as long as the money comes in, people will, or the funds have to buy indiscriminately regardless of the price. However, I think there's something else going on, which is what causes these parabolic moves to happen now. And I think that's the additional weighing in by the Robin Hooders, if we just put them like that, a kind of the perhaps newer investors who have been quote-unquote, forced into looking at something different than gambling. And then they found the stock markets. And of course, there are plenty of platforms that offers access with a small amount of money initially and, and little experience. And I think those are the things that I think are causing some of the Tesla moves, some of the Apple moves, et cetera, et cetera, where you see a lot of the movement in the markets being concentrated on a few names, plus, of course, all the other crazy stuff that's going on in things like Hertz and, and other bankrupt companies where suddenly the stock goes up massively. So my view is that for this to really end, which I personally think it will, I mean, this is to me just like 1999 once again, 
I think one, we need to see some uh, some event that triggers a significant sell-off again, where the Robin Hooders will learn that, unlike what Dave Portnoy says, uh, stocks only go up. I think <laughs> those of us who's been in the business for a while, we know that that happens most of the time, but not all of the time. And secondly, once that happens and markets start to turn down again, if it's not necessarily just a quick downturn, but more something, you know, it could be slower, but it could be longer in time, then I think flows will turn and then passive might not necessarily be something that continues to lift the markets up. But I actually think flows and passive could also become a headwind for the markets uh, given enough time, because at some point, a lot of baby boomers will have to get the money out of the markets to pay for their living. We know that they are retiring in in massive amounts now and in the next few years. So I actually think that that might trigger it. The thing is, when you're in such a strong bull market, and of course, if we move on to the kind of technical analysis world, if you just bear with us, but for for those of you who are familiar with Elliott Wave, and I, I'm not going to claim I'm an expert in that at all, but a lot of people are familiar with it because it's kind of a simple way to look at markets. It goes up in five ways, it corrects in three waves, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the Elliott Wavers out there, they believe that we are making the final, final, final high in a basically an up move that is the biggest cycle you can possibly have, the grand super cycle, right? So if that is the case, I mean, who knows? They could be right. If that is the case, it is not surprising that the topping formation of this market will take a long time because there is so much positive sentiment in the markets right now. And it's very difficult to change investor psychology after such a massive bull market. So so I think there's a lot of things to, to unpack uh, at the moment. And I completely, of course, agree with you that these kind of convergent strategies being long-only stocks or long-only bonds or whatever it might be have worked well. The 60-40 portfolio that we sometimes talk about has, of course, done a really great job. The question is, does that mean it's going to go do a great job for investors over the next 5 or 10 or even 20 years? And, and I'm of the view that it's not because I think correlations will change to go back to the norm, which is positive correlation. Bonds and stocks go up and down together. And interest rates are going to go up uh, at some point. So that leg of that 64 portfolio is not going to give you any protection. And in fact, it's going to lose you money. So it will be interesting. And of course, then gold plays into that. And so does the dollar. So it kind of comes back to the kind of a lot of the four main asset classes that we trade in our portfolios being impacted in a big way, potentially. Yes. And the Fed plays a major role as well. We don't know what they're going to do a year from now or two years from now and what markets are going to be. I tend to agree with you that the 60-40 portfolio has produced this amazing sharp ratio by just being, you know, 60-40 and doing nothing really else. Maybe rebalance it once a quarter or even on a monthly basis. It doesn't matter that much, but an amazingly high sharp ratio, essentially beating beating all of the other strategies, right? Yeah. But it, it also continues to amaze me that we have essentially a zero yield environment across the globe in all of the major markets, be that Japan, be that Europe, be that the United States, you know, in Canada and Australia, we're getting there. Yields just aren't there, right? So for pension plans and all of that, but but also in general, the attractiveness, if interest rates and yields are even negative, 
will people continue to just put money into these assets, into these bonds over and over and over again? I'm not sure. You're getting interest-free risk. If interest rates rise, like you were saying, Niels, then you know those bonds, the longer duration bonds, they really take a hit. So I don't know if inflation shows up, your bonds don't look that great. Why would you continue to put that much money into an asset that doesn't produce a yield or where you actually have to pay for the privilege to hold it? I find that very puzzling. Of course, you can bet on the price. You can bet on interest rates going even more negative or even lower, right? And bond prices rising. It's a bet. I, I, I don't judge that bet. I don't know where interest rates are going. But from a like long-term asset allocation perspective, people that you know want to invest like for their savings or pension plans, I don't know. I mean, what's what's their beef with these markets? Why would they want to own you know, a 10, 20, 30-year bond that doesn't pay them anything. Very, very puzzling. And there's so much money in that. And, you know, if if that ever changes, then that will be really, really problematic for the 60-40 portfolio. And we don't know what stocks are going to do at that point in time, right? Maybe the bonds will collapse and reduce, and maybe the stocks will do it at the same time. Ouch. That's the change in correlation that you were just mentioning. And then the 60-40 portfolio all of a sudden looks really, really bad. Yeah, I mean, um, most people should have a, a bank account like the one I was just reading about this morning on Bloomberg. Apparently, there's a Bank of America customer in Massachusetts who opened his bank account and he found an extra $2.45 billion in the account. I mean, that that would be nice. Yeah, a lot of problems get solved that way. I think we <laughs> probably should all have an account like that. <laughs> yeah. Now... Back to what we normally do, which is to look at how the week went and, and what took place. Uh, how was the week uh, on your side of things, so to speak? Sometimes people say boring is good. Trading should be boring. And it's been such such a week, like super, super boring. When I look at my portfolio, I mean, the thing barely moved. Yes, I mean, individual positions had a little bit of like a zigzag, but really nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that really caught my eye. I made seven basis points positive. I mean, so let's just call that flat, right? But at least it's not <laughs> another down week. So let's call it a recovery, right? But I mean, it's been really boring. I uh, I realized that while well, I saw one trade happening, I got stopped out of the uh, short natural gas position that I had on for quite some time, actually for a little bit of a profit. So, you know, it took the open trade equity that I enjoyed having on away, but um, it didn't close me out at a loss so that's good and woo woo i got long bitcoin in the wow. futures model i mean i i have bitcoin exposures on in other pockets but you know the the cta trend following model that i run has now established a long bitcoin position and of course i, I bought the high and it's now you know 500 500 points lower <laughs> yeah that is the the joy of buying the breakout um yeah. but there we are you know it was joy of buying the breakout it's just i think i i i um I saw a tweet by Jerry this week saying, uh, buying the false breakout is part of the success equation or something like that. And I couldn't agree more. You just have to take them all. Yeah. And there will be false breakouts, but it's, you know, part of part of the success and trend following is buying those fall breaks, false breakouts. Yeah. And in fact, we know uh, from the stats, there are more false, false breakouts than there are good breakouts. Sure. And that's just the way yeah. it is. So, but you're right. I mean, when I look at our on our side, you know, it's not that anything particular caught my attention either. We also had a small positive week in the trend following 
portfolio. And when I look inside of that, well, guess what? NASDAQ in particular was the uh, the winner, as actually was our volatility strategy, which we have an allocation to also inside our main strategy. Um, but we did see uh, positive performance in stocks and bonds and metals. And, uh, you know, the ones that struggle were the currencies and the grains. And What's what's kind of funny to me is when I when I look at this year and I take a chart of the VIX index and you just look at 2020. So it's a very clear divide, right? Q1 it just explodes to the upside, right? From I don't know, 10 or 15 all the way up to 80 plus. And then in Q2 and Q3 it just goes all the way back pretty much to where the breakout occurred. So it slides down as, as far as it came from and so when i look at our two different strategies i see that our trend following strategy made money in q1 on the way up expanding volatility and it's lost money on the way down contracting volatility and i think that makes a lot of sense although i did see actually that our vol strategy were able to do a winning trade on both sides of course not every single month but were able to also benefit from the third and then to me shows you the kind of the, the, the topics that are going on right now when it comes to volatility, and that is, are you a long or your short volatility manager? And when you just look at the VIX this year, it's it it shows you how difficult it is to be one or the other. And it kind of leads me to, to talk a little bit, at least to mention that you and I and Rob have been talking about doing a series, a mini-series on volatility, because we think it's an interesting asset class and, and there's a lot of talk about it. So if anyone listening out there has the ear of some of the greatest volatility managers out there you think we should talk to, um, by all means, send us an email, info at toptradersonplug.com, and we'll try and put something uh, together. But as you know, we do try and find the best guests in each topic, so uh, it could take a few weeks before we're quite ready with that. But but I think it's I just think it's interesting what's going on at the moment when you start looking at some of these markets. I agree. Please let us know if you uh, if you know somebody really interesting in the volatility space you think we should have a chat with. And uh, as Niels was saying, please send us an email or drop us a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you can reach us. Absolutely. What else caught your eyes this week? We have only one question this week, which won't take long. So uh, any other topics that you found interesting uh, in the various... Uh, People we follow on Twitter or other places, of course. I haven't been that active on Twitter this week, but maybe um, one topic that that I picked up is um, gold. It has to do with gold. I mean, gold, as you know, made a new all-time high also in US dollars. And uh, it's now, I think, a little bit less than 2000 bucks again per ounce, but it was higher than that, I think, earlier the week or, or late last week. You know, it is this... I think gold is potentially an issue for central banks and governments. They kind of like, they know it's out there. It's this, maybe it's really the only true money and everything else is credit. It is this thousand year old money, the alternative currency, or maybe the real and only currency. I mean, there are gold bucks out there. They they frame it in whatever way they like. I'm not really a gold buck. I can see the value of owning gold in an environment like that. But What's really interesting is, you know, how do you own gold? 
do you own physical gold bullion and do you have that in your safe? Is it segregated and allocated or is it unallocated and unsegregated and all of these type of things? Or do you own paper gold such as GLD or such as Xetra gold? There's kind of like a GLD equivalent product on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. And I guess there's probably these ETPs in other countries as well. There's tracking nodes on gold. Then there's gold futures, all of these things. Now, what's... What's clear to me is that if governments don't like people owning gold any longer and they want to restrict that, it's going to be so much easier for them to tap into these products, right? And say, GLD is no longer allowed. You can no longer convert GLD into gold or you can no longer trade it. Or there's going to be a very high tax if you ever sell GLD, right? Just specifically on that product. And ha ha ha. So this is what came up in Germany this week. It's like, yeah, we're thinking about putting a tax onto the etc. gold, which is the GLD equivalent, exchange-traded gold-backed fund that we have in Germany here, which up until now has always been tax-free because that's the status of gold. If you're buying gold here in Europe, it may be very different in other countries, I don't know. But as you know, at least it is true in Germany, if you're buying gold and you hold it for more than a year, then there's no tax, right? Now, if you're buying this product, then the government all of a sudden says, well, you know, I think we should tax you north of 25% for the joy of it. And so, you know, it's kind of like these things that can happen where, you know, they and, and the same can be true for gold futures and all of that type of stuff. So I think it is very important with these assets to think about how you want to get exposure and how you want to hold them over time and what they mean to you. I think that's an interesting point you bring up. First of all, I think from memory that Danish people, I mean, if you live in Denmark, I don't think you're allowed to own gold, by the way. I think it's actually not allowed even to own it, which is interesting. And the second thing, by the way, and I'm of course not surprised that they, you know, in Germany now are proposing a, a tax on, 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 on another asset. Uh, that's not a surprise as such. But What's interesting about the thing about owning it physically or owning it via an exchange-traded fund or something like that, I seem to remember that earlier on when at the height of the COVID-19 crisis back in Q1, the price of getting physical gold were trading somewhat higher than the um, electronic gold. But I think that actually has reversed. I think right now, I think physical gold is a little bit cheaper and I think like you explained a little while ago, some kind of spread trade that was like risk-free money in Bitcoin or whatever when we had Preston Pish on the, on the podcast. I uh, was listening to Eric Townsend, another one of our guests, uh, talking on one of his episodes recently. There is also one kind of a risk-free arbitrage going on in, in gold at the moment um, between, I think, you know, current contract or one-year-out contract, whatever it is. But anyways, I mean... I think if you, if you, I mean, this is just my two cents. If you own gold because you think the worst can happen, owning it electronically doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. If you really want to own it, you should probably have the physical gold. I think so too. I mean, it depends on what you want to do with it. If you want to trade it inside a trend-following futures program, it, well, okay. by all means, you know, trade gold <laughs> futures. If you think that you should complement your trend-following program with an allocation to gold, and you really think, you know, you believe that that is like a long-term thing that you want to have in your portfolio, you're not going to sell it. I guess there's an argument to be made in, in favor of holding a physical position. 
And what Eric Townsend, I, I remember the episode. I mean, what, what has been happening is that the actually well-arbitraged gold market between London and New York. So London is, London is the capital for physical gold trading. And the COMAX in New York is the capital for futures trading in gold. And, you know, those two spots are normally well-arbitraged. And there's other, other exchanges like in Dubai and, you know, and, and Tokyo where gold is traded. But during COVID, that arbitrage got out of whack because refineries closed and, you know, the, the, the bullion that actually is acceptable to the clearinghouse and in New York is different than what they had in London. There is now a new contract in New York that allows for the same bars to be accepted in New York, but it's thinly traded. People don't take it up. And then also there haven't been as many flights between London and New York back and forth in order to actually run the arbitrage, right? To ship physical gold from London to New York, refine it there and make delivery. So, but I think this spread has uh, has narrowed quite a bit again. I don't want to say that the arbitrage is gone, but um, uh, it's it's narrowed. Yeah, I mean, and by the way, uh, you said at some point, you know, maybe central banks and politicians don't want, or central banks in particular, don't want us to own gold. Well, if they don't want us to own gold, they shouldn't have sold it to us when it was trading at 200, like 20 years ago, when all the central banks got out of gold. Yes, they got out of gold. And um, interestingly, the I think the, the gold position of the United States hasn't really changed in decades. It's still the largest gold holding. I think second is the Bank of England. I, I may get that wrong, but I remember seeing some charts. And then for quite some time, like you were saying, for instance, the Central Bank of Russia didn't have much gold left and they were selling their gold and other central banks were reducing their gold positions, their reserve assets as well. But I think three or four years ago that changed and uh, Russia started buying gold. Um, some other emerging market central banks started buying gold. I know the, the the Bundesbank where we're not getting shorter gold. If anything, I think we're getting longer gold. So there's something strange going on. Speaking of that, that's funny you mentioned about the Bundesbank and, and gold. I seem to remember a little while ago where the Bundesbank asked for their physical gold back from the US. Correct. And then suddenly that got completely you know, stopped in the initial tracks that no way you're going to get your gold back. Don't even bring this up again. And it completely died from the media, which is quite surprising, actually. But it has happened. Did they get the gold back? Yes, it has happened. Okay. Not all of it, but a a large portion of okay. the gold that the Bundesbank used to hold in London and in New York got transferred back to the vaults in Frankfurt, which is kind of interesting right? because, you know, I mean, what what are they sniffing out that we don't see? It's kind of like, yeah, you know, something happens. Let's just get that gold back to closer to my waistline. Well, exactly. And and also there's been this, this debate for many, many years that it's kind of odd that the Fed doesn't allow a audit of themselves and that people don't really know if all the gold that they say they have really exists in Fort Knox and in New York and wherever they're meant to be. So there's certainly been a lot of stories about that. I mean, my only personal experience with buying physical gold, I have to, you know, a damaging admission here is that I bought some for my wife back in, I don't know, the 90s in Dubai. Very excited coming home with this piece of jewelry, only to discover apparently gold you buy down there has a completely different color than real gold. Oh, no. Not real gold, <laughs> but gold. So, of course, she didn't like it at all, and I had to go and sell it the same day at a fraction of the price somewhere in London. So... I think I've 
I'm finished doing that. Buy high, sell low. We've heard that before. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yes. Anyway, I mean, we can jump into the question. It's a question that sure. we've had a number of times, but it doesn't mean we won't talk about it um, because we appreciate everyone sending us a question. And and I guess the more the same things come up, sometimes, one, it shows that that's a, I wouldn't say a struggle for investors uh, or for people listening to our conversation, but it's an important topic. So we'll, we'll honor that and respect that. And sometimes we come up with some new comments. But I will say to uh, Nazaro, who sent in this question, that you should go back and check out some of the earlier editions of this series, because we have certainly talked about these things before. But they are super important, so let's dive into it. Maybe on this day in 2020, Morris and I will come up with some completely different views on this. We'll see. So the question is, one, model adjustments. If your model goes through a period of drawdown, at what stage do you decide that something isn't working and that perhaps the initial assumptions and inputs were incorrect? There may be a significant regime shift due to a change in regulations, government policies, central bank intervention, and other that render a, mo a model valid. So do you have a methodology for signals such as changes and thus makes adjustments to your model? Or do you stick with it come hell and high water? So let's start out with that one because it is a, it is a question that I think a lot of people think about. Yes. So let's start maybe um, from the back there. Stick, stick with it, come hell or high water. No, that's not what we do. We sometimes change our models. We want to be careful that we don't change them too often and also not too quickly. If a market is impacted by new regulation, which I think came up in the question, right? So if something external changes that impacts the workings of the market, how that market is traded, how liquid that market is, etc., etc., then of course, this may immediately trigger a change to the system, right? For instance, you know, some government or some regulatory uh, entity or authority doesn't allow me to trade whatever contract anymore, then of course, I have to get out of the contract. Or if there is a special tax on the profits or the losses that arise from that contract, then of course, yes, I will need to make changes, right? And those will be relatively immediate, I guess. I don't really, well, that, I, I actually remember one. Remember the unleaded contract that we had prior to the RBOP contract, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, we've always traded gasoline, but, you know, it, uh, it used to be a different contract. It used to be unleaded and then HU is the ticker and then it became X, XB, which is RBOP, which is the contract that we're trading today. Things like that. A more recent one is actually the futures contract on the Russell, it changed from ICE to CME. So yeah, it's kind of like the same thing, but now it's a slightly different contract. It's trading on a different exchange, so you make changes to your system. But those are those are easy ones. As to the when do you when do you know that it's stopped working and it's no longer working and there's something wrong with the model? We've tried to well, we we thought about this so many times and we've we've had it here on our show together with Jerry a couple of times, I guess. And there is no black or white answer to this. This is not a one zero decision where, you know, it jumps at you and it tells you 
this no longer works. Please take me out of the portfolio. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. I think it has a lot to do with what Margaret Jasimski brought up, which is the theoretical versus technical and practical experience. You kind of like have to follow how the system works and sniff it out if there could be something wrong or if that is proper decay. You can run some statistical analyses, of course, but probably the sample size will be very small when you want to make a decision to take something out of the portfolio because I'm guessing you'll you'll get a feeling that something's wrong when it stops working for, say, two years or something like that, right? The market doesn't make money for two or three years or the system is kind of like moving sideways or going down for two or three years. But then when you very objectively stand back and you ask yourself, what am I looking at? You'll probably find that you're observing a very limited sample size. You know, it's two or three years. There's 250 trading days in a day, right? So it might be 500 or 750 trading days, right? And not every day of the 750 will have a trade, right? There will be probably periods in there where nothing happens. So you have very limited evidence always that you can really back your decision on. And that's why I'm saying you probably have to stick to a robust system that is not overly complex, doesn't suffer from parameter overkill, right? As simple as possible, but not simpler. That's how it should be. If you if you have that system and you like that system, you probably have to stick with it for a longer period of time um, and, you know, go through the drawdown, don't change your system and just expect that system to find its, foot, its footing again and uh, at some point make a new all-time high. And anything else really is a, this is the discretionary part of systematic trading, right? Where we're systematic traders. Yes, let's just define system traders as people that follow a model. Okay, we do that. We follow the system. We follow the signals of that system, but we have to come up with a system. We have to calibrate it. We have to design it. And at the end of the day, it is your decision, you as a trader, you as a designer of that system, you as a participant of the markets, you as a quant, whoever you see yourself as, probably all of that is true, to decide how you want to design that system, how you program it, and when you want to make changes. And this, I've, I've never met a person that can really answer the question and say, this is now, now exactly on that Tuesday, this is when you need to make the change because of exactly this movement in your portfolio. It just doesn't work that way. I guess you need to have trading experience in order to make these decisions in a, in a proper way. If you start out trading with a trend following system, which you've just designed in Python and you've never traded before and you've never run a system, and let's say you have, you know, two months where you're making 5% and then you have three months where you're making minus 5%, you may, you may be freaking out and you may think that the thing is broken and, and, and maybe you immediately start fiddling with it. I really think we benefit, I know you, Niels, and, and I do, and, and Jared does, from multi-year handling and experience and looking after these systems and thinking about them and reading about it and, and becoming sometimes philosophical about trend following. But all of that helps so that you don't, don't immediately jump to early conclusions. Yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of things to unpack. I think you've touched on many of them. I would talk about it in this way as well. First of all, I would 
Think about, you know, when you ask the question, Nazaro, are you thinking about the long-term trend-following systems? Are you thinking about shorter-term models? Because I think when it comes to shorter-term models, I think there is model decay to a very high degree. And I think you have to, frankly, and I know a lot of our friends in the industry who trade short-term have told us so, that you have to continue to innovate and upgrade and evolve your models because they do suffer decay over time. They simply aren't as profitable. So let's just put that aside and say, okay, short-term guys, you definitely need to uh, make changes to the system. Now, as as Morris was talking about and that I would uh, talk about now is, is kind of what we do, kind of the longer-term trend-following approach. And here, what I think is one of the reasons why we end up not making a lot of changes over time in addition to what Mort said about, you know, you have to have conviction and you have to stay with it and all of those things and you need time to play out. But I really think it's because we're not trying to optimize what we do to any particular environment. In fact, I think for most trend followers, I can't say that all do, but for most trend followers, we trade the same parameters across all markets, which of course will never be optimal. We know market structure is different, so we know we could optimize it. But if we optimize, we probably put most of our profits in the past and not into the future. So we stick with something that is unoptimized. It can still evolve. I mean, some some strategies will have the same parameters without any change on our side. We actually do let the model evolve over time in a systematic way. It will pick parameter combinations in the future. It will pick them on a regular basis, but from a systematic point of view. So anyways, so I think those things are, are are important to consider. Of course, there may be things that changes your opinion. So so I guess you could say, well, time frame is one thing and, and also the markets you trade. And, and as Moritz already said, that sometimes some things can happen that makes a market impossible to continue to trade and and, and so on and so forth. And, in, and I think in both our cases, we have liquidity requirements. So there are lots of markets that trend, but we just wouldn't want to trade them because we have certain minimum liquidity we need to see in the markets. So you end up with a reasonable universe that most trend followers trade that are liquid enough. And that's why we don't really make a lot of change either on that side. You can expand the number of markets. We also discuss that from time to time. Or you can stick with your sort of 50, 60 markets if you have an, a big enough account and they will give you plenty of diversification. But I do think and to, this is a long way to get into the to the crux of the matter. And that is, I do think that from time to time, we have to evolve. We have to improve what we do in order to stay competitive. I actually think that is true. So I think both uh, Jerry, I think Moritz, and, and, and certainly on our side, we do a hell of a lot of research to think and to try and see whether there are things that we can do. And sometimes, not often, I think sometimes you discover something where you just say, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And you then go and back and you test it and you put it through all the various different scenarios that you can think of to make sure that it is robust. And then you may trade it for a while on a paper trading basis. And then until you're comfortable that, yeah, this really is an improvement. I mean, we've done that from time to time, not many times. I can think of two or three times over a 45-year track record. So it's not that often you really find something groundbreaking in trend following. 
but it can happen and I think we should continue to look for it. But to just finish all of this off, I think what trend following does include is that part of it, what we do is science and the other part is art. And I think this is the art part where, as Mort says, experience is the only thing that can guide you or maybe it's the most important thing that will guide you in the art of deciding when to make a change after you've done all the science work, if that makes sense. All right, the next one is about risk management. Position sizing, portfolio diversification, and where to place stop losses are obviously connected. Do you have a way to determine how you're going to size your position in the different instruments you trade based on some sort of conviction indicator? And how does that relate to where you place your stops? If your portfolio is hyper-diversified, why have stops at all? Good question. So, mm -hmm. over to you, Moritz. Yeah, I, uh, the only conviction I use is the breakout. That's as convicted as I get. There's, there's no subjective judgment or anything like that that you know, plays a role in my system. And then I know that you know, there are systems, and I think uh, this is true for you, Niels, where you know, stops are not being used. And, you know, perfectly fine. There's no rule that says that trend following can only work with stops. I think it's a matter of taste and a matter of what people like and how they want to, you know, have their risk defined. Personally, I do use stops and I use stops for every position that I put on. Now, I don't set the stop based on, you know, my conviction of the trade or whether, you know, uh, it has moved very nicely through that breakout. It has nothing to do with that. The, the way I set stops is a function of the average true range of that market. And if a market is more volatile, it moves more, it has a bigger range, it has a greater average true range, then I will need to take that into account and set the stop farther away from my point of entry so that I don't get immediately stopped out. If you think about you know, an example, natural gas, which has moved quite a bit in recent days and weeks. If you take a position natural gas at, you know, 2.50, and it these days it moves, I don't know, 10 or 20 cents a day easily. If you take a position natural gas, you're buying the breakout at 250 or wherever the breakout is, and you set a stop at 245 for your long position, then the odds are you're going to be out of that position before you know it just because the random market noise of natural gas is so great at the moment that it will most likely hit your stop and uh, you'll just you'll just realize a loss so you have to set that stop lower i cannot tell you where you need to find that out through your systems research right and then you have your stop which is a certain number of atrs away from your entry and that then in return determines your position size this is how i do it the greater the distance between the initial entry and the stop, the greater my risk per contract, right? And I only want to risk a certain amount of equity in every trade that I do. So if I have a large ATR market, such as natural gas, it, it you know it's characterized by moving a lot, it has a big ATR, and therefore my stop is far away from the entry point, then that means that I need to have a relatively small position size vis-a-vis -vis other positions in the portfolio that have less volatility, a lower ATR, and stops closer to the point of entry. Euro dollars, for instance, right? I can have a much bigger position size in euro dollars and a much closer stop 
but have the same risk in terms of equity on the portfolio level. This does many beautiful things, in my opinion. It defines my initial risk. It normalizes my losses. I can look at the portfolio in ATR terms. You know, I can measure everything in ATRs. I can measure my P&L in ATRs. It is a way of standardizing and normalizing a lot of the bells and whistles and the moving parts of my system. I can bring them back to kind of like ATR terms. And that is something that I like. Yeah, beautiful set. And um, just following on for that, Nassaro, as Mart says, yes, I mean, on our side, we don't use stops per se. We build up exposure to the markets, which actually, by the way, both Jerry and Mart does as well, not based on a single signal, but based on many, wouldn't maybe the signal is not the right word, but we have many confirmations and that's how we build up the conviction in the signal. And therefore, in our case also, that's how we build the exposure in the markets up until a certain size. But what we do on our side is that we then manage the whole risk of the portfolio. And that's why we don't look at individual positions with stops. The risk is managed in a slightly different way because we want to control the risk on a daily basis for the whole portfolio, not on an individual trade-by-trade -trade basis. But, you know, the beautiful thing about this and, and what your questions really, I think, show is that there are a few different ways to do trend following. It doesn't, it's not a perfect science. And uh, and I like that. I mean, and, and as Moritz says, you do your own research, you find what works for you. And then once you have the confidence and the conviction that this is something that you can stick to, because that's the other part, that's the real hard part. And that is once you've decided on all those things, you have to stick with it for years, or I should say decades actually, then uh, off you go. But we don't do the same thing. And, and we know that uh, to be true because also uh, dispersion returns in a year like this year is also evident. But it's where the creativity perhaps lies within trend following is just a slight different interpretation of certain things. But the key philosophy, whether you use one way or the other, is always the same. You know, let your winners run, cut your losses short, manage your risk, stay disciplined, stick to it, all of those things, they are exactly the same whether you use one way or, or the other way. So, um, yeah, good questions. Anything else? Any other topics you want to bring up? Otherwise, let me, I can run through some of the, where we are data-wise and stuff like that. Anything else, Mark, you want to? No, the topics, I think next week we'll have Robert Carver, Rob Carver joining us again. I'm looking forward to that. Yep. I was just about to say that as well. Rob is back. So send your questions cool. in. I know Mike, by the way, Mike, I've been pushing you for weeks in terms of your question, which was specifically to Rob. But hey, we have a guy who actually went on holiday here for a few weeks. So uh, yeah. now he's back. So then uh, your question will, of course, be answered. So we appreciate your patience. Other questions when Rob is back will be great. So send them through. Performance-wise, BTOP50 index up uh, 14 bips. As of Thursday, up a quarter for the year. The CT index is down about 70 bips for the month and down about 88 bips for the year. The trend following index is down about 1% uh, so far in August, up about 1% for the year. Short-term traders index is down about 18 basis points, but still up 3.38% for the year. 
The Bridge Alternative Index, funnily enough, it seems to have stopped updating on their website, so I can't really tell you where that is. But MSCI World, for those of you who do dare invest in long-only stocks, I mean, it's up 3.78 for the month, and now it's up for the year 1.43%, whilst the uh, World Government Bond Index is down about half a percent so far this month. Cool. So just a quick reminder, if you know some amazing people in the volatility space, let us know. We would love to see if we can put together another series for you. We will continue our global macro series as well from time to time. And speaking of that, this week we published two great episodes. Last night, one with Jim Bianco that is a must listen to, but as is also the one with Campbell Harvey that is the professor from Duke University that was out earlier this week. So um, please do go and listen to that. Otherwise, you will lose out. With that being said, that's it from Moritz and me. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you and Rob uh, next week. In the meantime, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.